Well, most of us, if not all of us, have heard the, the uh, analogy or the parable of the, the frog that boils in the kettle. I think I've even we've talked about it before, you know. It's kind of the sick idea that if you take a frog and you put him in, in tepid or lukewarm water and slowly heat up the kettle, then eventually the frog, because it doesn't notice the subtle changes, will actually boil to death and die. Um, just so you know, I've, I've never tried that. For you animal lovers, I will never try that. Although I, I did stick a, a frog in my aunt's microwave when I was 10. And just let me tell you, from first-hand experience, uh, don't ever try it. But uh, the idea, the idea of, I just threw you way off, didn't I? They're going to be thinking, they're going to be thinking, I wonder what happened. How many, how many hours did it take to clean out the microwave? Well, let me just tell you, I'm not going to tell you, okay? So, but the idea is, is a poignant one of, of how devastating subtle changes can be if, if we're not attentive, if we're not vigilant, if we're not... Uh, assessing, like if we're not doing self-evaluation, it's just easy to go with the flow and find ourselves changed over time in ways that we don't even know. Like, I think about the frog in the, in the kettle, what could he have done, you know? Um, he could have taken out a, maybe a, a thermometer and go, I'm just going to check the temperature, way this is getting hot. Or maybe he should have, like, noticed that he was getting dehydrated or his skin was starting to blister. Or maybe if you had a good friend on the outside to say, hey, you know, there's a lot of steam coming off that kettle. You might want to think twice about staying in there. Any one of those things, maybe he wouldn't have succumbed to the degrees after degrees of heat. And I, I think about that, and I, I think about where we live and the time in which we live and the culture in which we live. We are living, and I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but at the same time, we just need to stop and self-assess is that we live in a time of change. Um, and, and from our perspective, depending on how old you are, I suppose, it, it feels like those changes happen subtly. Changes in values. Changes from having a theistic view to a secularist view. Uh, changing of, of morality and ethics. Like, it's happening, like, all around us. And we're in the middle of it. And the question is, do we have... Are we taking the time to self-evaluate and recognize the water's getting hotter in which we live and things are changing? Are, are we aware of those changes? And are we, um, do we have the spiritual eyes to see compromises that shouldn't be made? That's, that's, that's happening. And I, 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 dare I say there are a lot of believers in this culture who are being more influenced by the culture than the scripture or by the gospel. And that's a dangerous thing. So I, I, my hope is this morning, this, this particular text is, is one that has the capacity to, to, um, to warn us uh, it, in a loving way. God gives us warnings not because he's angry at us. God gives us warnings because he loves us and he wants us to learn. Well, we've been studying the, the people of Israel in, in Exodus, and, and we'd followed them for, for some time. And um, they were... Uh, residents in Egypt for nearly four centuries, which meant that they were immersed at some level, to some degree, in Egyptian religion, uh, Egyptian culture. And in this chapter, we're going to see some of what they learned, maybe unconsciously, comes out. 
And Paul says, in the text that was just re- read, it was a, Paul is looking at this story in particular and using it to warn the church. It's like, this is an example of what not to do. Now, it's interesting how, you know, Paul talks about the Old Testament or the Old Covenant in particular, and this is kind of an aside, but it kind of puts things in theological perspective. Uh, sometimes the Apostle Paul likes to draw uh, differences between what we call the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So he could say things like, well, um, we are no longer under law, but we're under grace. Um, or he could say that the Old Covenant was here for a time to lead us into Christ, but its time has come, and so it doesn't directly exercise dominion over us any longer. That's Galatians. So he's drawing differences. But at other times, he draws um, similarities. It's like, well, at the heart of the law is the love for your God and love for your neighbor, which means at its heart, it's the same. Uh, Or here, he would say, and Hebrews does the same thing, he looks at the life of the people of Israel and realizes we're kind of like them, as in, Um, where they are here in this particular chapter in history is God had reached into this place of of slavery and by a sheer act of grace through Moses, he he delivers them. We too, um, God has reached into our world and by a sheer act of grace through the person of Jesus Christ has rescued us. Same thing, rescued by grace. Old Covenant people, he brought them to the mountain. He established a covenant, a very, very sacred relationship with stipulations. Then the primary stipulation for the people of God, for the people of Israel, was you shall have no other gods before you, no graven images. That was, that was, that was the, the first and primary stipulation of this covenant. It's just going to be me as your God and you as my people. There will be no contenders. Same thing in the New Covenant, is that God calls us into a, a, a monogamous relationship between creator and creature. Um, that is the same. So here we are. So at the same time, he says, so there's similarities. It's like they were saved by grace, and they were brought into covenant, and we were saved by grace through the cross, and we were brought into a monogamous covenant with the Lord. And he goes on in that First Corinthians 10 passage to say, we are subject to the same vulnerabilities to, in particular, idolatry. And that's what this chapter is about. It's, some of you know your Old Testament history. If you don't, you want to read through the entire chapter, which I, we don't have time to do this morning. But basically, Moses is gone, and the people of Israel say, you know what, we need a God, uh, either um, a replica of Yahweh or um, an, an image of another God. There's, there's uh, some controversy over exactly what this golden calf was. But they are going to create uh, an idol of sorts, an image, and they are going to worship it. And it is, it is a monumental failure. Actually, this isn't just a little failure. This is a monumental failure that biblical writers after this time would look, look back to, like the Apostle Paul. So with that kind of introduction said, I'm just going to move in two directions this morning. One is, is exactly what Paul did. I'm going to take this the way he did, and that is um, to use it as a warning. Let him who stands take heed as you fall. That's, it's, it's to warn us, a loving warning, don't do this. Be careful of this. Watch out for this. Be vigilant. Don't allow yourself to be boiled in the water. But at the same time, there's also a word of hope in here, which we're going to end with. Um, to focus our eyes back on that which is positive and, and, and hope-producing. So, to get into the warning part, the first part, 
just to give you um, the event itself and the, the warning that's kind of this gives to us is just, again, the perennial, that means always, uh, danger of, of idolatry. And if you don't know what idolatry is, we'll get into it a, a little bit later and why it still exists. You don't have to have temples with little gods that are made out of silver, gold, and wood to have idolatry. Um, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. Aaron's second in command, right? Main guy's gone, second in command. And they said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, um, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, or a feast to Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day, they were super excited, and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is the event. Moses has been gone for, according to chapter 24, verse 25, he's been gone for 40 days. That's how, that's, that's how long he was on the mountain. Now, we don't know how long into that 40 days it took for this to happen. But we're talking 40 days, you know, approximately six weeks. The people who have covenanted themselves to the Lord, they said, we will be faithful to you, as the Lord said he would take care of and bless his people. Six weeks, max, maybe less. They decide they're going to violate the primary stipulation, the first two commands of the Ten Commandments. That's like, just in terms of analogies, that's like a, a young man and a young woman standing before a preacher, vowing to each other, you know, I will love you and you only until we are separated by death. And within six weeks, the man or the woman saying, you know, I found somebody else. That's that, like, the idea is, this isn't like it didn't take 50 years, it's like with, within 40 days, this has happened. This is a violation. Now that's going down, on, down below the mountain. And up on top of the mountain, of course, the Lord who's all-seeing, he knows what's going on, he knows what's going on with the people, and he says this to Moses. And this gives you a sense of how he feels about this. It says, this is down in verse 9, he says, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked, that means um, stubborn, haughty, like a donkey wants to do its own thing, people. Now, therefore, let me, leave me alone, Moses, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. At this point, like the picture is that God is angry enough to wipe them all out. It's like the flood. It's like, I'm just going to wipe them all out, and I'm going to start over with you, Moses. That's how the Lord feels about this. It's this whole concept of idolatry. Now, we might be tempted to think, well, isn't God, like, overreacting here? <laughs> it's, it's like, isn't, he, isn't this exaggerated? Is, is the Lord really this angry? I mean, come on. Like, nobody's perfect. Like, they screwed up. Why would he be this angry? 
Is he hot-headed? Does he have a short fuse? After all, people are imperfect. Isn't this just a violation of a, of a simple rule? Sometimes we think that way. It's just, isn't just a violation of a simple principle of life, like leave a place better than you found it, or put the toilet seat lid down. This isn't just a violation of a rule. This is a violation of a covenant. That is a sacred word that defines our relationship with God, and it goes far deeper than just a mere infraction. It belittles and diminishes the greatness of Almighty God who created us, who is the Alpha, the Omega, who is infinitely holy, who, who, who went all in to save his people. So it is, it is, it is not just an infraction. This is, this is major. His, this is not an overreaction. It's not an overreaction at all. This is how the Lord feels over idolatry. We may also be tempted to think, well, gosh, isn't, isn't that just old covenant God? Like, he seems to be a little more angry and wrathful in the Old Testament. Isn't he happier and more lenient in the New Testament? Right? And the answer is, heck no. Same God, both covenants, same God, one Bible. I mean, Jesus himself says, and I just, I, I'm layering this to make the point that this is egregious. It's not a little thing. Jesus himself directs his words to the church of Pergamum in Revelation 2 and the church of Thyatira. And both of them have people within their congregations who have compromised idolatry. And to the people of Pergamum, he says, I will come and I will wage war against them. And to the people of Thyatira, he says, I will come and I will strike them down. Same God. Same jealousy for the heart of his people. Jealousy in a good and wholesome sense. That monogamous relationship has been violated, and it causes deep anger in the heart of God. So, next question. So, why is it that it happens so quickly? What is it about this idea of idolatry that makes it so seductive? Because we can easily look back and see these, imagine, picture in our heads, these people bowing down or, or offering sacrifice to this little golden calf that's been made. And think, man, those guys are really stupid. Like, we would never do that today in our enlightened state where we have iPhones and computers and angry birds. Yeah. It's not an issue of of stupidity or that they're more primitive than we are. I mean, just by the sheer literary genius of the first five books of the Bible, you realize that Moses was brilliant. And venture to say, so were a lot of the people. So what is it? And I, I just want to say this. I, I want to say that the, the allure, the attraction, the charm of idolatry is every bit as seductive today as it was 15, well, 3,500 years ago. So what is it about idolatry? that makes it so easy. And why Paul had to say, watch out for this. This is going to be a constant temptation. It's a disease that's always going to be around you. It's contagious. You don't want to give into it. A few things make it especially attractive. One, idolatry 
offers us something tangible. That is something we can touch, something we can grab onto, something we can see. Yahweh, the Lord, by contrast, he, he, he's the one who shrouds himself in a tabernacle. He doesn't allow his people to touch him or to see his presence directly. Um, he, or he, he shrouds himself in a cloud. It's like to be a worshiper of Yahweh requires faith, conviction of something you can't see or touch, but idolatry offers you something tangible, and it can be anything. It can be a child. It could be a grandchild, right? And a child or grandchild, wonderful things, gifts of the Lord. I, I was, it was impressed upon me just Friday night just how much I love my daughter. You know, she was a freshman in college, and she was driving for the first time all the way from Southern California to Northern California, right? I'm a little bit fearful, and I told her, I said, you know what? I want you to put me on Find Friends, my phone, because I want to track you. And I was thinking, you know, I'll check in every hour or maybe five hours, you know. It was like, man, every five minutes, like, okay, she's in Kettleman. Yeah, no, no, she's approaching Kalinga, that stinky place with all the cows. And so it's like, then she got to 12, and I'm like, oh, she's getting 12. And I text her, be careful, it's, you're on 12. And I just realized she's not supposed to read text while she's driving. So, <laughs> you know, I was just like, I love her. I do. I'm so glad to have her home. But if good things become ultimate things, then they become idols for us. And, and that's what we have to be careful of. You know, you can, you can hug a child. You can see the smile of a child. You can see the laugh of a child. And it's tangible. It's so easy to worship tangible things. You see? It can come in so many different forms of fishing or golf or whatever you find satisfaction in. It's tangible. The, the, the golden cap was tangible. It could be seen. It could be touched. Whereas the God of the Bible requires faith. You can't touch him. He's not tangible like that. That's one thing. It's, it's tangible. That's what makes it easy. That's what makes it so seductive. It's, the other thing is at some level, idolatry provides a level of control on the part of humans. That is, it kind of puts us in the driver's seat. And, and what human doesn't like control? I know some of you think that you're not controlling and other people are controlling, but let's just be honest, everybody is controlling. All of us want to be, at least, in our very subtle, sometimes socially acceptable ways of manipulating people to think what we want them to think. But, oh, <laughs> you like to be in control. And uh, take, for example, the idol of money. I mean, the New Testament identifies it as an idol. And money is just one of those things that's not only tangible, but if you work hard for it, you get it. And, and then when you get it, you are in control of how it's spent to give you what you want or the pleasure you desire. So it offers uh, a levels of control to get what we really desire. That's, that's control, and that's why it's so appealing to worship other things. It, it not only is tangible, I can touch it, I don't have to have faith, but it's, it's controllable. It's somewhat manageable. It kind of puts me in charge of the pleasure factor or the success factor or the praise factor. It's, that's what it does. Whereas the worship of Yahweh, we come to him on his terms. He's the one who orders worship. He's the one who's in control. And our response to him is always to surrender control to him. That's, that's hard to do. You see how easy it is. It provides something tangible. It provides something somewhat manageable. It puts us in control, which is what the fallen human heart wants. 
And the, the last part that I think comes to light in this passage is idolatry tends to cater to our fallen human desires. A lot of the ancient pagan religions offered some form of sexual liberty in their worship. Hence, you had temple prostitutes and so forth. Well, it's, I'm guessing the, the people of Israel learned something about pagan worship in Egypt because it shaped what they did when they worshipped this golden calf. I mean, you look at the very last phrase there. It says, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, that is further um, described in verse 25, this rose up to play, this eating, drinking, where it says, and, and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, they went from being constricted and confined and moral to breaking loose. And in Paul's commentary in 1 Corinthians 10, he links it to sexual immorality. I think the picture that arises here is one of debauchery, or we might call this a kind of festal orgy. What happened? The fallen human heart desires what it desires, and oftentimes idolatry provides an avenue of liberty that Yahweh in his covenant regulations, will not allow. Who wants to be a worshiper of Yahweh when there's regulations involved? Like, I can only worship him, whereas if there's something else, it provides some level of liberty for me, for my fallen desires. And you know what? There is an entire segment of the population who want to reshape, to restructure the history of the New Testament so as to reinterpret it to make what was formerly wrong right. And at the heart of it is nothing less than a compromise with idolatry and making sexuality cheap. It's here. It's here. And that's what makes it so seductive. Tangible. At some level, it's controllable. And it often gives liberty to a fallen desire. So... Here you have this, this example, major failure. Use, it's supposed to be a warning to us. So, like, what about you? Realizing that it's, it's hard sometimes to really detect. Am, am I, am I, am I really, is there something else that's in place of God? Something I'm more devoted to, I love more, I sacrifice more to. It's, it's sometimes hard to really detect that until God takes it away from you, and then, then, it, then it becomes clear. But there's a series of questions that the author, J.D. Um, Greer, um, asks to the event of trying to, like, discover, is my heart really devoted to the Lord, my covenant relationship with him, is ours as a church? And here's some of the questions that he asks. What one thing do you most hope for in your future? To go play pro ball? Um, husband? Grandchildren? What is the one thing you find yourself hoping for more than anything else? And try and name it in your head. Retirement. What is it, the one thing that you look forward to the most? Second question. 
What is the one thing that gives you, or one thing you most worry about losing? Where do, where do most of your worries and anxieties center? Death? Loss of a child? Not enough money? Like, what, what, where do you find your anxieties and fears centering on? Three. What thing have you sacrificed the most for? Time, energy, physical activity, to have the perfect body, to lose 30 pounds? What is the thing you work harder for than anything else? Is it your child and giving them absolutely everything, being in every ball game? Is, it, is that what you work hardest for and are most sacrificial towards? Or number four, who is there in your life that you feel like you can't forgive and why? This is an interesting one because um, he, uh, Greer argues that if there's someone that you can't forgive, then chances are they did something to you or they took something away from you that you depend upon for j life and joy. And because it's so sacred to you that they damaged it or took it, it may or perhaps may not be. But I think he would say perhaps, just perhaps, it's because there's an idol there. When do you feel the most significant? You know, what makes you feel the best? Feel the most fulfilled? You know? Is it being the hero? Um, delivering a great sermon? Doing a work and patted, being patted on the back as you just, I feel so significant in this moment. Is it giving money at a fundraiser and in that moment you feel so significant because you're able to raise your hand and say, I'll give $10,000. What triggers depression for you? And where do you turn for comfort when things are not going well? What is, what is it that you turn to when things aren't going right? Prescription drugs, alcohol, the attention of a woman. These are all questions that, when taken together, can help us. Discern, is, is, is there something that I am worshiping in addition to or above the Lord? And Greer summarizes this list of questions this way. He says, do these questions reveal certain patterns in your life? Like, I put all those things together. And then he quotes St. Augustine. St. So Augustine said that things like worry, fear, sadness, and deep depression are smoke. This is pretty good. Smoke from the fires rising from the altars of our idolatry. Follow the trail of that smoke and you'll see where you have substituted something for God. Now, we don't talk about this this morning because we want to rain on your parade or our, my parade. Rather, just imagine the frog in the pot, frog in the kettle. It's like to have a voice from Scripture say, listen. Am I the object of your greatest love? Am I, the Lord, the object of your greatest trust? Am I, the Lord, the one who ultimately gives you comfort? Am I, the Lord, your greatest hope? That's, it's meant to cause us to ask these questions so that we might discover, you know what? Water's getting hotter, and I need to turn this thing around. And I need to beg forgiveness from the Lord and say, you know what, I have replaced you with something else.
No wonder I am so bankrupt of spiritual passion for you because I've turned to other things. So it's a question for every one of us, including me standing on this stage. Because after this event, Moses came down the mountain and he took, he was angry, the text says, and he should be. He represented the Lord there and he took that calf and it says he burned it and then he ground it into powder and then he forced the people to eat it, which meant that great God that they just worshipped ended up going through their digestive system and into a place we don't want to talk about. And then he asked the question of the people, which is the question, I think, for us. He says, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. It's time to choose. If you worship the false thing, now is the time to decide to turn from it and to come back to the Lord's side. This is the decisive question. You can't have it both ways. You can't worship God and something else. That is a violation of that monogamous covenant we have with the Lord. Is there something that you know? And some of you might actually have some very, you know exactly what it is. You could name it. Even when I started going this direction, you're like, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about. I know exactly, I know, I can name it. A relationship that's inappropriate. An activity that you keep going back to, a substance that you find yourself going back to over and over, you, you know exactly what it is. So the question is, whose side are you on? That's as short, concise, pointed as we can say. Who is on the Lord's side? And then make the decision to go to him. That's a word of, of warning, but a gracious and loving word of warning. But I told you there's a word of hope in here, too. I want to close with. You'll notice in the story that there's one saving grace that keeps God from wiping out all the people. And that is the person of Moses. In this particular chapter, he plays a medi mediatorial role, unlike, I think, any other chapter in Exodus. That is, Moses goes to the Lord and he pleads with him. It says he implored. That means he begged. He begged the Lord, his God, and said, Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Now we know why. But he reminds them, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? And then Moses says, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as stars of the heavens. And all the land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The Lord, like, stopped. He relented. He took it back. This is an amazing event. The Lord is persuaded by the words of Moses. In some sense, this text says he turned. 
Now, we would be, we would make a huge mistake if we inferred from this that God's a hothead who needed calming down by Moses. Right? Come on, God, you're just overreacting. That's not the picture. The thrust of this is not to make God appear weak or overly angry or impulsive, but rather to show how necessary a mediator is for the salvation of God's people. I mean, look what it, he doesn't say. Moses doesn't say, hey, listen, the people are basically good. They made a mistake, an infraction. Have a little mercy. Aaron, my brother, he's a basically good guy. He doesn't say any of that. He appeals to the Lord based upon the namesake of the Lord. He's like, listen, like you saved him. Now you're going to kill him. And, and what are the nations going to say? He saved him, brought him out, and blasted him to hell. He's concerned about the name of the Lord, the glory of the Lord. And then he's like, and remember, you promised. Like, you can't go back on your promises. He is persuading God based upon God's promises and God's glory. He's concerned about the Lord. On a primary level and on a secondary level, he's concerned about his people. But then there's something that happens that is, I just think it's beyond awesome. It's like, here he is persuading, and the Lord says, okay. He goes up a second time, and, and this is what he says. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. It's like, they blew it. And it's not just a little sin. It's not a simple infraction. They blew it big time. This is a great and awesome sin. They deserve to be blasted to hell. That's the way I paraphrase it. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now. Listen to this plea. If you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book. That's the book of salvation, the book of God's sons and daughters. Blot me out of your book that you have written. You see what he's saying? Like, he's saying, listen, will you forgive? And if not, this is how I read it, will you take me instead? Blot me out. The chapter was intended, I believe, in Moses' role to teach us that we had to have a mediator. But Moses wasn't worthy of offering his life and to be blotted out instead of his people. And all of this just in a very shadowy way points us toward the only one who could, who would say, in a manner of speaking, take me instead of them. They've sinned greatly. They've blown it big time. But take me instead. Does that sound familiar? Of our true mediator, the only mediator between God and man who is the person Jesus Christ. And if you think God is some angry person, overly angry person, um, does our idolatry and does our sin anger him? Absolutely. In ways and in proportions that we'll never understand. 
But the same God who's angry is the same God who sends himself, who sends his own son to be mediator between God and man, who's willing to say, listen, blot me out instead of them. Now that is something that no golden calf will ever do. That is something your, your wallet will never do. That is something a 401k will never do. A child can't do it. A wife or a husband can't do it. That a God would give himself. That he would take our transgressions and place them on himself and then strike himself down. That is a God worthy of all of our loyalty, all of our devotion, all of our surrender. And to trust him even though we can't see him. And to allow him to govern our lives and have control over our lives and surrender to his good and wise reign over us. And, and to allow him to dictate, because we trust him, what is right versus what is wrong. What is moral versus what is immoral. I'll tell you, man, that's just, again, beholding a God like that in the person of Jesus Christ who is the substance of the shadow should make you want to worship the Lord and want to follow him and want to obey him. And my, my, my hope, prayer, like the underlying structure is that once you have dis- discovered, I, I, have, I have some idolatries in my life and it's serious and and I need to make them right. Instead of just saying, I, I just need to make them right, that you'll turn your eyes to someone far greater than an idol, who is Christ the Lord. That's the motivation behind it. So listen, just, it's appropriate to just take a moment, right, and just uh, do a little self-assessment. Um, and do a little self-evaluation. Wrestle with some of the questions that you read up on the screen. And and this is a time for, for you. It's a time for me. It's a time to put the thermometer in the water and say, wait, am I, am, I, am I becoming so influenced by culture that I'm worshiping the things the culture worships? So just, just, just take a moment, and then uh, and we'll close with a couple songs.